Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that rebuilt itself literally after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester city centre in 1996. While the city continues to grow brick by brick, we know that what makes it great are the people that come together day in, day out, like my guest, Daisy Copeland. Sometimes that's what equality is. It's not always about doing things the exact same way. It's about giving everyone an equal opportunity to have success. When she was a little girl, it was illegal for a woman to box and not easy for women to play competitive football. Since then, she's gone on to represent her countries in both sports, win a European silver medal as an amateur boxer and make history as the first ever British female boxer to win the Commonwealth title. In 2017, she set up Pave the Way, a project which promotes gender equality. She delivers talks in schools, communities and business and she also currently presents The Dead Good Show on BBC Radio Manchester. Stacey, thanks so much for joining us today and we built this city. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I've got a big opening question here. It was illegal for women to box and not easy for women to compete in football when you started training. So how does a sports mad little girl from Hyde go on to compete for her country in both sports and win the Commonwealth title as a professional boxer? Um, yeah, you're quite right. There was there were a lot of barriers when I was a little girl. So in football... The ban on women's football in this country was actually lifted in 1971, but the Football Association, or the FA, uh, didn't officially recognise girls and women's football until 1993. So as a little girl in the 80s at primary school, there were very few opportunities for girls in football. There were no leagues or you know no team structures, and they also had a rule that you weren't allowed to play with the boys. I don't know why, but it was it was just all I wanted to do. I mean, there wasn't really anyone who was any good at football in my family. No offence to them if they're listening, but they're, they're hopeless. So I don't know where I got it from. But in the playground, at playtime, lunchtime, I did have girls who were friends, but they just weren't doing stuff that I was interested in. I remember that they tended to be doing uh, that thing with an elastic band, making shapes or whatever that was. They'd be doing hopscotch and having lots of weddings, which <laughs> I just wasn't interested in at all, and I'm still not. Um, I just wanted to play football. Um, so I went you know, to all the team training and eventually had our first game. I think it was seven, maybe just about to be eight. And it was just an amazing feeling, stepping out onto the pitch, playing as part of a proper team. But, of course, during the game, someone recognised I was a girl and insisted that I be made to leave the pitch. And it was just an awful feeling as a little girl having to walk across the pitch and leave the game. And uh, it made me feel like there was something wrong with me for, you know, for, for playing the sport that I loved. And, importantly, it didn't stop me. Instead, I went home and insisted that my mum cut my hair short, which is a bit of a shocking hairdresser looking back. But uh, she cut it short and so I could pretend to be a boy and play on the team. And... The problems that led to is kids saying, why do you want to be a boy? Well, I never wanted to be a boy. I just wanted to play football. And at the time, that was the only way. Um, and so that's how it really began in football. And eventually there were opportunities for girls in football. And thankfully, I was able to take those opportunities. In boxing, it was a very different story that, you know, I was in the gym from being six or seven years old. My dad was a boxer. My granddad ran the gym. I just loved everything about it from the first time I went in the gym. In fact, even just watching Rocky, as a kid with my dad, which I loved. And obviously I thought Rocky was real. I just loved it. And um, I did everything that my little lad mates did in the gym, you know, all the training, going to the shows, sparring, the lot. And when it got to about the age of 11, when you can usually start boxing, I said to my granddad, right, you know, we're, we're all ready to box. We want to get our medical cards. And he just said, you can't box, kid. And I said, well, what are you on about? And 
said uh, it's, it's illegal for girls. And it was indeed at the time against the law for girls to box. So um, I had to wait a long time until I got the opportunity to compete. But um, thankfully in that time, I was able to pursue my other love, which was football and have a, a great deal of success with it. So I've been really, really fortunate to have two careers, if you like. Mm. And so you went over to the States, didn't you, with football? Yeah, so in football, um, I went to my very first all-girl team training at Stockport County when I was about 11. Um, and I'd kind of, by then, I was, I was a very driven, competitive kid and I was ready to compete. So there were, because there was no opportunities in boxing, um, I knew that I was going to go start going you know, more seriously towards football. Plus, I'd watched Karate Kid and attempted to do the crane move on the banister <laughs> at the top of the stairs and uh, swiftly went to the bottom and broke my shoulder. So boxing was out of the question for about a year uh, while well, that repaired. But I remember going to that first training session. And, you know, I think doing mixed sports is really important, but I also appreciate how valuable it can be for girls to have their own space to do sport because... That first session I went to, I mean, all of the girls were, you know, talking about shin pads and the latest Predator football boots and, you know, the teams they loved and the players they loved. And I was like, wow, here's my tribe. And it was all these little girls just like me. And it was just an amazing feeling. So from there, you know, I, I kicked on and, uh, you know, was able to represent my country, which was, you know, an amazing honour. And then, as, as you point out, I got the opportunity to go to America and, and take a scholarship over there, which... I would say was probably one of the you know most life-changing experiences for me as an athlete and a person uh, going over there. And as part of that, I got to spend a pre-season in Brazil, which for any footballer is somewhat of a pilgrimage, really. What a fantastic place to go. And uh, I finished my playing career in Sweden. So I, I was lucky enough to you know, experience football in, in many ways, but also live in different countries and experience different cultures, which is uh, massively enriching and a, a great education in itself, really. Yeah, such a fantastic opportunity, that scheme. Um, so football and boxing are such different types of sports. One's a big team sport, one's very solitary, um, but you took to both. Um, what was the kind of, what did you enjoy in both of those different types of sports? Well, I have always seen boxing as a team sport, to be honest, because I think, you know, when you're preparing for a fight, you need your coach every single step of the way. During the fight, you know, you rely on your coach and the team around you. It does take a big team to prepare. You know, the, your coach, you might have someone who does your strength and conditioning, a nutritionist. Uh, there's a whole team, particularly when you box at international level, like when I box with Team GB. There was a sports psychologist, a physiologist, coaches, physios, you know, like a huge team behind the team. And so you really do feel, and then of course, as your teammates. Um, however, once the bell goes, that's the part when you compete on your own. For me, that's the only difference is that, you know, the competitive part of football happens all together collectively on the pitch, whereas in boxing, it's just you. But you're very much part of a team the whole of the rest of the time. Um, and those are my favourite differences about it. I love the fact that with football, when the whistle goes, you know, all of you, on that team are all going towards the same goal. And that's a fantastic thing to be part of. But I love it in boxing that once the once the bell goes, yes, you've got that team around you, but it is all entirely down to you and a personal challenge for you to do your best. And I like both aspects of both sports. I read that your, um, your granddad said that on the first day you went into the ring at his gym, at this bar when you're little, you, you nearly knocked one little lad out and that was the end of his boxing career and the start of yours. So you've always been that driven. Yeah, to be honest, it was from um, Jimmy Egan's boxing gym. It was the, the Northwest champion and he'd come to spar with one of our 
sort of really good, you know, young boxers. And when they got there, my granddad said, oh, he's, he's not well. He wasn't able to make it. And he said, oh, we've brought him all the way down here. You know, he's got his next fight in a couple of weeks. It's the next round of the national championships. And he said, uh, what about him? And pointed at me. And I was on a bag in the corner. Obviously, I had my, my short hair and I was about, you know, nine or ten. And my granddad went, ooh. And he says, him. And my granddad went, give me a minute. So he comes over to me and says, do you want a spa? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, you've got to pretend you're a boy. So I'm like, right. So I kind of walk across the gym in like my trying to be a boy walk. I don't know what that was all about. But anyway, and I uh, got the head guard on, the gum shield in, got gloved up. And um, yeah, it, you know, had a, it probably wasn't that much skill involved because you just go 10 to the dozen when you're a kid, but obviously did it better than he did. And he ended up with a bloody nose and he got out and um the coach came over to my granddad and said, you know, who the bloody hell's that lad? And he went, that lad's my granddaughter. And he went, oh, no, don't tell him whatever you do. I don't know if they ever told him, but uh, that was that, yeah. So it was, uh, my granddad loves that story. He, he tells everyone. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, so you won a silver medal at the European Women's Boxing Championships and then went on to win the Super Welterweight Commonwealth title in Zimbabwe in 2018 and the first ever British woman to win the title. How did you feel when you were walking into the ring on that day? Very, very nervous. Like the nerves for that fight were unbelievable because it was a huge build-up over there. Obviously, it was way out of my comfort zone being in a totally different place. There was a lot of pressure because I knew I had the chance to become the first to do it. And being the first to do it, it's always about timing. Um, so I was lucky that you know I had the chance to be the first to do it. And, um, and also a lot of pressure because... I didn't want to let anyone down, you know, all the people that had supported me and my coach and my family and friends and everybody else. And also I wanted to put on a good performance for the sport because it was 36 years since any British person of, of either gender had boxed in Zimbabwe for a start, but certainly, you know, the first major women's combat fight of, it, of its kind on that scale. And there was, you know, there was millions of people watched it over there because it was free to view on there on the African continent sports channel. So yeah, there was huge pressure. I felt enormous nerves, but I was also excited, I, th I think, because I knew or I believed it was my moment. And I also know that if, you know, if you're going to inspire people, you have to step up at those key defining moments in your career, whatever career that might be. But particularly in sport, it's a lot more visible and raw than other types of careers, I'd say. Um, and if you can step up, and do it, you can really can inspire a lot of people. So that massively motivated me. And, and I've just, I believed it was my time and I believed I was going to do it. And I just couldn't wait to get in there and show what I could do and, and win the title really, and hopefully inspire people watching at home. Mm. I've heard you talk about courage over comfort a lot in the work that you do. Is that how you kind of feel in that moment? It's because you have to make yourself very vulnerable, don't you? And put yourself out there. Massively. I mean, I, I can't say there's much in my life that's that's given me nerves like boxing. Uh, it's not like anything else, to be honest. Uh, it just doesn't compare to anything whatsoever. And um, I think that choosing courage over comfort is, is, is from Brene Brown. And she says that you can have courage or comfort, but you can't have both. And uh, I think she's absolutely right. And for me, um, there's been the element of, of the physical competition that it, without a doubt takes you out of your comfort zone fighting. Because, you, you know, you're getting in for a fight with another human being and your brain's job is to protect you, whether that's protecting you from the humiliation of losing, um, you know, the threat of defeat or, you know, badly losing and you get knocked out and you feel foolish or, um, you know, just the, the physical 
aspect of it. You know, it's your brain's job to protect you. So it's not meant to say, yeah, get in there and have a fight and risk losing it. It tries to put you off. So you have to overcome that mentally, that the, the nerves that are there and appreciate that they're there for a reason, but, you know, uh, go and do your best despite them. And then the other aspect of courage has come outside of the ring in fighting the uh, stereotypes about around femininity and, and gender, certainly when it comes to women in sports like mine, uh, the barriers that are there and speaking up on these things and, and, you know, using my platform and my voice to try and break down those barriers that also requires you to come out of your comfort zone. And, you know, sometimes that does take courage. Not always. Sometimes it's, you know, just obvious and natural and a positive thing. Other times it absolutely isn't. And you know that you're inviting a lot of criticism and nasty comments and, uh, but I think if you, you know, sometimes the right thing to do is also the hard thing to do. And if you truly believe in it deep down, it's it's worth doing. Absolutely agree. I love Brené Brown. Read all her books. And um, but yeah, something that I, I love, um, Courage Over Comfort. When you won your title, um, you had to have your photograph taken, the winning photograph taken with a photograph of, a, of the belt, didn't you? Because there wasn't one available for a woman. That's right. Yeah, that, that photograph was, was mine, actually, because um, in the whole build up to the fight, I'd had a photograph of the belt in my car, in my bedroom, at work, everywhere to keep me focused through my training. Um, so I had it with me and uh, we had the picture with it afterwards to make the point really that there hadn't been a belt because obviously it was a massive high winning, but then to not get a belt was hugely disappointing. I mean, it's the whole point of doing it is to to get that belt. And I think when, you know, when I got back on the on the Monday from Zimbabwe, I fought on the Friday night, when I got back on the Monday, I rang the head of the Commonwealth Boxing Council and explained, you know, it'd been a great experience, et cetera, but not getting a belt was, you know, deeply disappointing. And he explained that the manufacturers of the replica belt had ceased production. So I said, what's that got to do with me? To which he said, well, we do replica belts for women and real belts for men. So quite matter of fact, so I said, oh, why is that? So there was more money in men's boxing. I said, I know, but surely if it meant you know, I wasn't going to have a, the alternative was not having a belt. Surely I should have been given the option, even if it meant buying it with my own money, because I'm never going to get that moment back again. And I, I'd thought that the worst moment would have been that straight after the fight, not having that moment, me and my coach with that belt to celebrate. We're never, ever going to have pictures with that belt straight after in the ring, like everybody else has. I thought that'd be the worst bit, but that, in fact, it wasn't. It was that everybody was so excited to see this belt back home and all mm. on social media and in my messages they've been saying you know it's coming home it's coming home I can't mm. wait to see the belt I just didn't have the heart to tell them there wasn't one and when we got back to Manchester airport so many of mine and my coach's friends and family were there to surprise us and not having that belt to share with them in that moment was really it was just you know that sinking feeling yeah. uh, it hurt but yeah. it also made me very angry that you know why should you be treated like a second-class citizen like that so you know, I said to him, you know, that, that's gone, nothing I can do to change it, but how quickly can I have a real belt? To which he said, um, well, you can have one within a couple of weeks, but they're quite expensive, so unless you've got a sugar daddy, you probably won't be able to have one. It's hard to put into words that burning sense of injustice that you feel. I mean, I worked full-time in a school at that point. I've worked throughout my sports career, I've had to, and, and I'm proud to have done so. Uh, so it felt that much more patronising to, to say that. But again, we have to pick these, you know, these battles and the way we go about them. Uh, so I didn't say what I wanted to say, no. say that much, but uh, we kept the dialogue open and I didn't want this to happen to a future female champion. So they agreed to make a Commonwealth title belt for women. And we got the first one in December 2018 and now it's it's there. And that's that's part of what paving the way is really to make things better for the next generation. This is the We Built the City podcast. 
celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. So why did you set up Pave the Way? Well, Pave the Way actually started three years ago where it coincided with my pro debut and it just was a project for Women's Sport Week, which is something they used to do where all the media outlets and stuff used to cover women's, women's sport for one week and then forget it for the other 51 weeks of the year and feel good about themselves. Now, obviously, it's you know it's a lot more spread out, so we don't have Women's Sport Week anymore. But um, I'd done lots of other people's projects, Women's Sport Week, and just wanted to do my own. And when I started as a pro boxer, usually we have a, a nickname, um, like, you know, the hitman or the assassin or whatever. Um, my nickname is uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, um, which all my friends call me because as soon as I get an injury and put weight and I just turn into a square-shaped human being. So it's not that great of a name for a boxer. So I decided to go instead with something that I stood for and pave the way just felt completely right because that's what I was trying to do, pave the way for, you know, girls and women in my sport. So that's how it started. And I did it for a week where I visited lots of schools and community groups. We had um, a photography exhibition of women who work in sport, which is now on permanent display at the, the velodrome. But it just grew from there and, and it seemed to really resonate with people. And I thought, you know, we need to keep this going. And in that three-year period, it's changed in three ways. One is that now it's about more than sport because all the places that I go and do public speaking, it's become quite apparent that women in law, in tech, in construction and so on have had a very similar experience to me as a woman in sport. And I think what's more powerful than sport and business when they come together to make a difference, you know, what happens in sport can really impact every aspect of society in the workplace, in the home. Um, so I think, you know, I, I can't ignore that this is happening across the board. So sport's at the heart of it, but it's about all industries. And also it's about both genders because a lot of parents have contacted me and said, we've got a little boy who does ballet or whatever, and they've given up because of the stigma that they face. And that's not good enough either. You know, if we make things better for one gender, it's better for the other, in my opinion. So I think, it, you know, it might be good to do something where we can look at both aspects of masculinity and femininity and look at the harm it's doing us to be so rigid with these stereotypes and the third way that it's changed it's now become a charity so about 10 weeks mm. ago we got charity status so we've not been able to move that much on it because obviously of the current uh crisis but we, we will do eventually and what will the that status enable you to do will it give you kind of wider reach yeah i think so and you know we, we took a lot of time deciding what route to go down and I think the, the charity route just felt right for all of us for the trustees involved and because you know we really want to make a positive difference and the, the whole premise of Pave the Way is that gender should never be a barrier to human potential that's that's what it's based on hopefully it won't need to exist eventually um, but you know we, we really want to find ways that we can tackle and help people tackle you know these these stereotypes and like I say break down the barriers that are there because it's certainly a lot of barriers and I don't think there's as many barriers for men in sport obviously it's, it's actually difficult to think of sports where men are unwelcome or you know not supposed to be doing it let's say um but in industry there is you know with you know male nursing as a stigma mm -hmm. and in primary schools you know male teachers that's something we need to encourage more male carers social workers you know it goes against what those masculine traits are supposed to be and it's ridiculous because men are great at caring and nurturing just like some women are. So, um, yeah, those are things that we want to look at as well. It is interesting because my daughter, she's 19 now, but even when she was at school, there was much less inclusion for girls then in terms of competitive sports. Um, and, you know, it, it almost took me back when we were at school. I grew up in Salford and we were told to go and play with the hula hoops when the lads were playing football. 
and I was sports mad. So that was frustrating. It is such a shame. And as you say, it's a it's a massive prevention of human potential. It is. And, and you know, I'm one of the fortunate ones, I think, because I had a, a family who were very supportive and, um, you know, in my granddad and my dad, I had a lot of male role models and, and female too, who um, really have supported me all the way through. And I also was just that kind of character, um, but not everybody is. And I think it's really sad when you think, had I given up? Um, so if it was, I don't know, you know, when when that incident happened on the football pitch as a, as a little girl, that may have, have made me think, do you know what? No, I don't want to. I don't want to no. be dealing with this. Like, oh, you know, I could have given up. It could have been that bad of an experience. Yeah. I gave up. Thank for my love, my love support, my love for sport, um, was was just so great that it, it it didn't stop me in my path. And once I got to secondary, you know, there was loads of name calling, she male, shame boy, and all that. You know, people thought if I was doing boys sports, I must therefore want to be a boy, and I, I didn't. I still get it now. You know, why why do you want to box? Why do you want to be a man? Well, I don't want to be. I don't want to box so that I can be a man. You know, I've got far greater goals than that. I wanted to be a world champion. So, um, you know, I think I'm still facing that now. But imagine if you took away what football and boxing and, and sport in general has done for me and my life. It, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And how I've been able to use it also to do good for others. And if you take that away from, from me and the ripple effect, you know, it has of me being involved in sport, it's enormous. And that's what saddens me greatly because when you look at some of these, you know, young people who stop dancing or... It's really sad, and there's a, a a lady I was speaking to last year whose son, Joe, is is he just loved ballet. He had you know a real passion for it, and he only did it at home. Wouldn't go to any dance classes because he knew he would face a lot of stigma. And she eventually convinced him to go. And after his first session, the the dance teacher said, "Like my God, he's he's a freak talent. He's exceptional. Mm -hmm. He's now he's from Manchester, but he's now at the Royal School of Ballet in London." which, by the way, only have 12 children in every year group, and that's from across the world. So you're talking the top talent across the world. Now, what a phenomenal experience for that young man and what a life he's going to have that could have been, you know, could not have been had that stigma prevented. And that's not good enough. We need to be doing better. Absolutely. So do your mum runs, doesn't she? Yeah, she's a runner. She, she's been a fitness instructor, you know, for about 30-odd years. Um she does a lot of, of yoga now. She does a lot less impact now. But yeah, she's uh, she got into the running a few years ago and uh, she's a England Masters category runner now. She's represented England and she's like the pocket rocket. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> my mum my mom, um, is a swimmer, so she grew up in Bahrain and their playground was the swimming pool. She always had green hair because of the chlorine apparently, but... Up until at lockdown, she was doing a hundred length three times a week, and it's just amazing wow. to see. She's got a, you know a social circle around that. I think it's just such a brilliant thing to be involved with, isn't it? Sport or physical activity because you do have those, you know, that like you say, that social network can be yeah. enormous for people actually. Absolutely, and I think competitive sport. If you can get together in a team, obviously Sarah Collins has been on the podcast, and and she actually took me to see. Um, the exhibition, the Pave the Way exhibition, I thought was amazing. Uh, but she obviously been involved in back to netball and there's a massive community um, for women returning to, to netball around that, which is fantastic. I think it's unbelievable, the campaign that, that, that you know, the, the, obviously the Commonwealth Games, that just phenomenal, you know, nail-biting ending to that yeah. that gold medal was was incredible But on the Gold Coast. But um, I think... You know, it's not just that, the whole momentum that they've had. Because really, all the girls I grew up with, and, and probably all the same, who were just fantastic at netball, 
just disappeared after once she left school. That literally was it, and they never ever played again. And mm. why? Do you know? And that that's another thing about pave the way. The whole approach is question it, challenge it, change it. Because I think quite often we don't question the way that things are, and so they don't change. And we have to question it. And we for so many years we just said, yeah, loads of my friends love netball, and then they just never played again. And nobody ever said, why is that? <laughs> might yeah. there be some of those women who actually might want to play netball again recreationally or in a league or whatever and when somebody finally said why have we not done this and did it it's been remarkable and sometimes that's all it takes isn't it totally and one of the things that you've mentioned and I I just thought it's one of the best things that I've ever seen was um the first women's derby at the Etihad last September when that was an opportunity, I mean, I actually messaged Joanne Roney as well and said, we've got to make this happen. And lots of people campaigned for it. But it kept, that day to get on a tram that was busy to go to, that was full of families all going to support women's teams and then seeing all the little girls and everyone with the strips on. And it was just what an atmosphere that was. And it was a first for women's football and a first for Manchester. It was incredible. And I think, you know, again, football's done a fantastic job of, of doing things differently. And sometimes that's what equality is. It's not always about doing things the exact same way. It's about giving everyone an equal opportunity to have success. And, you know, talent is always universally distributed. It doesn't matter whether it's gender, disability, you know, class background from the, you know, poorest parts of the world. You can get incredible musicians, athletes, everything, all walks of life. And, so, yeah, talent is definitely universally distributed, but opportunity isn't. And that's what equality can be. And if we just kept saying forever, well, if you make tickets 40 quid, no one will ever buy them, then women's football never would progress. But somebody, again, has questioned it, said, why don't we do it differently then? And they did. They made the, che- the tickets cheaper for adults. It was free for children. And then what have you got next? This incredible, as you've described, family-oriented atmosphere. And... Personally, I absolutely loved it because mm. I felt that for my niece, I felt really safe, Tim and I, my, my boyfriend, we felt really safe taking uh, a nine-year-old to a football match, which, to be honest, if it was a Man City, Man United men's derby, I can't say the same. You know, don't, you don't even feel mm. safe yourself sometimes on match day because we've got this, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's very aggressive. The, the racist things that are shouted, the insults that are shouted are not the great, you know, modelling of behaviour that we might want for our children. Plus, they don't always feel safe. At that match, they did. And what was lovely is they were also able to ask questions. I heard lots of the little children around me asking questions about the game. Like, what's that? And I could hear parents explaining, that's a corner. And they're, they're going to go there now and take the corner. And like Ruby said when the game started, why haven't they done any, why haven't they had a song? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, usually before uh, ladies football, they all stand in a line and hold hands and sing. And I was thinking, what is she on about? And he said, like on the television. And then I realised he's only ever seen international football on the television, which of course they do Mm. hold hands and sing, and it's the anthem. (laughs) But she's never, ever seen domestic women's game when, of course, they don't do that. So it it was just great. But yeah, like you say, seeing all these little girls in the kits and, you know, they're a lot more accessible, the players, you know, so the, the girls can stay afterwards and get stuff signed. And, yeah, it was just a great, great atmosphere. It really was quite quite special, especially for someone who was there at the start of the sport, you know, or more towards the beginning where it wasn't like that and we were just laughed at. And I think mm. we can see with football, not all of women's sport is the same. It's different depending what sport you're in, but certainly with women's sport, we can see 
the process, if you like, of social change, which is uh, ridicule, discussion and acceptance. Years ago, it was all ridicule. We were just ridiculed far and wide for playing women's football. Gradually, we've got most people to the, the, the discussion stage now where they're at least willing to say, have you seen them though? That game was good and the World Cup was good and that player's good and that team's good. And eventually, you know, that's going to lead to acceptance where we say, yeah, women's football's good, they're good players. And that's what will happen with the, every women's sport eventually. Definitely. And there's such, as you say, those players are accessible, aren't they? I mean, you've got people like Katie Zellum, who's just such a, a great inspirational role model for young people and is very engaging, very open on social media. And the fact that Ruby even can ask those questions is um, progress, isn't it? I mean, 20 years ago. Well, my son says that I don't watch football, I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> So he's, he doesn't think that I'm not allowed to talk about football. I think I took, I've, I've taken my mum to a couple of games, men's games, that is, because all the women's games that she saw, I was obviously playing in. And I remember we've been to, I think, one at Stockport County when we used to get tickets as part of the youth team. She came to one of those. And then the only other one was Soccer Aid that we've been to together, which is obviously that thing that Robbie Williams organises. And um, I remember we were sat there and she really was quite disengaged throughout the whole game. She wasn't really interested in any of the legends, whereas I was like, oh, you know, they played for Chelsea years ago. They played for that. You know, I knew obviously all the players. And the only bit that got her excited was when they were about to make a substitution and it came up on the big screen and it was Will Ferrell. Um, and he was about to come on. And my mum, at the top of a lung, stood up right in the middle of the stands and went, Elf! Elf! I was like, Mum, sit down. <laughs> sit down. <laughs> She's like, but it's Elf. I love Elf. We know you love Elf, Mum, but you're out of footy game. Sit down. <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> if you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. You inspire lots of people around Greater Manchester and you've given over, I think, more than 100 talks um, in schools in the city region and recently got a standing ovation at TEDx Manchester. I was gutted I wasn't at that because um, you were speaking also, Jed King from School Fades, and I, I was away, I was out of the country, um, but I've, I've seen it um, after the event. Um, what inspires you about working with those young people? I think uh, they inspire me, really, because I think... Obviously, you see, all of us see a bit of ourselves in young people. We know what we were like at that time. And I think when you look back, there's an element of the horror of those teenage years and growing up that you, you might recall and go, oh, my God, that was such a difficult time. And you empathise with what they're going through. And they've got the added total chaos of, of social media and mobile phones to deal with. But then you also can look back and see that energy, that excitement, that not knowing what's going to come and having all of the, the world at your feet and all the things you might want to do. So it's a, a mix depending how you reflect on your, your childhood and your formative years. You can see a bit of yourself in them. But also, um, you know, the real little ones just have the best questions. You know, when I go to primary schools, you know, some of the things that I've been asked is is brilliant. I've been at, um, we did a careers week talk once and I was talking about, you know, the different careers you might want to do. And I asked what, what do you all want to do? And one little girl put her hand up and said, oh, I, I want to be a teacher. So I said, oh, that's brilliant. I said, uh, what do you want to teach? And she just looked at me as if it was an absolute idiot and said, children. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's not wrong. You know what I mean? But it was, it was obviously I was meaning subjects. And she was just like, looked at a friend next to her and say, who is this total bozo? 
there's other ones where one came up after and said, oh, my uh, my daddy does boxing. I said, oh, wow, what's his name? And she went, daddy. <laughs> and you forget, don't you, these little innocent things of when you're a kid that you, your mum and dad don't have a name other, other than mum and dad at a certain time. And it's so lovely to be reminded of of those things. And I think one of the one of the funniest questions ever was when I'd been... I got, got onto injuries and if you get onto injuries with kids they want to know has a bone ever come through your leg and what's the worst broken thing you know they, they love all those details and they'd asked about a gazillion questions about injuries and this little tiny girl at the front puts her hands up and, and I said yeah and I thought she was going to ask about injuries and she went when did you have did your ears pierced <laughs> <laughs> I said my, my ears and we had this whole conversation about 10 minutes it turns out she really wanted her ears pierced and was just asking everybody when did they have theirs done it was it was just but how lovely is that you know that she could never mind all this getting medals yeah. and whatever when did you have your ears pierced you know so uh how can you not be inspired by that it's just wonderful um and then of course you've got you know the, the ones who contact me um and just say you know i've been wanting to do this for ages or, you know, I've felt like I've wanted to go in the gym or I've, you know, and, and I've, I've gone and it, it, you've inspired me to go. I mean, that, that's just so uplifting. It, it just fills my heart. It really does. And it makes every struggle worth it to me when, when you get that kind of, uh, you know, if you can use something you're passionate about to inspire others, it's just, honestly, it's just such an amazing thing as, as I'm sure you find out through doing this. It, it's just a fabulous thing to be able to do. It is. I've also heard you talk about having a, having to have a side hustle and that's something that you tell the kids about. Actually, Gary Neville said the same thing on the podcast. So it doesn't matter if you're a sports person or whoever you are, always have something else up your sleeve. I think it's really important. And I think it's something that's starting to evolve in sports now um, because, you know, we tend to not look at athletes as people. Sometimes we can look at them as just a performance machine. And there's a real danger in that, I think, because for the athlete, and I've done it myself, lots of athletes have, you can end up where your entire identity is is, is a sports person. And then as a byproduct of that, if you lose a big game or a big match or a big whatever, then you're a loser. If you fail in that goal, then you're a failure. And your whole self-worth and meaning and purpose can be wrapped up in winning and losing and of course there's many factors that go towards winning and losing um and it's you know much more healthy if that can be something that yes you're very dedicated and committed to and it's a massive driving force and focus but it doesn't define who you are um and so I think by having a side hustle whether that's a, a cause or something that you really believe in um you might be an ambassador for a cause or a charity or whatever or whether it's you know, it might be a job, you know, in some cases, some of us have to have a job, but it doesn't have to be a job that's only for money. It can be something that has meaning and purpose in your life. In addition to sport, I just think it's really important for athletes to have that because I, I don't just see it as a fallback on thing. Do you know what I mean? It, it shouldn't be just for that. In my opinion, it's important to have that and have a backup plan. Definitely. Um, but I think if you can do something that has meaning and purpose, then that's even better because whether you continue with sport or not, or however long you're in sport, it's something else in your life that, that defines you as a, as a human being and gives you purpose beyond just have you scored a goal? Have you, mm. you know, sprinted faster than anyone else? You know, those are really important, but there's other meaning in life as well. Mm, absolutely. And obviously you've said that a good coach can change your game and a great coach can change your life. You're coaching some of that's, that's part of your purpose now, isn't it? Moving forward as you, you're coaching young people to believe in themselves. Um, so 
firstly, how important has Blaine been to you in your oh, career? Oh, massively, massively. And this is where I can't talk about uh, women's sport without including men because it just wouldn't be right because a lot of my coaches have, you know, overwhelmingly been men because of the sports that I'm in in particular. Um, and they've been some of the greatest mentors and influences you could ever wish for in both football and boxing. You know, my, my coach in America, without a doubt, probably the most important mentor in my life and had a massive, massive impact on me. And then, of course, in boxing, that was in football. And then in, in and I had many others as well. My, my coach at Doncaster Bells and, you know, the list goes on. Um, in boxing, the coaches at GB uh, were, were fantastic. But Blaine has been my only coach as a professional and has just been incredible. And I think his mindset, the way that he respects his fighters, the way that he puts fighters first and, you know, that whole experience in, Zamb- in Zimbabwe was, you know, so incredible, largely because of because of him, because he made it that way. You know, he was just unbelievable to, to work with as a coach. And uh, I think in the fight itself, without a doubt, he got me through that fight. Um, you know, I don't think I could have won it without him. Definitely not. And that's where I say that the team element is massively important, you know, because we had a lot to deal with that week, you know, before Zimbabwe, we'd had the fight at Middleton Arena, which 10 minutes before we were due to go out, there was a stabbing in the lobby and the entire thing was cancelled, which apart from the fact that it's a horrendous thing to happen, also meant that, you know, we lost all the money on the fight. It was really stressful, you know, thinking, where are your friends and family? Is everyone all right? The whole thing was awful. And then we suddenly got the call on Monday. That was on the Friday. On the Monday, we got this call. You've got this opportunity to go to Zimbabwe. And we had like eight weeks to prepare. And his commitment to preparing me for that was second to none. And then when we got there, they lost my luggage. You know, I didn't have electricity in the room at first. There was loads of things. And he Mm -hmm. just, all the time, was just like, stay focused. We're here to win. It was just brilliant to have around, to be honest. And, And I think, yeah, there's the technical, tactical aspect of coaching. And that's the bit about, you know, a coach can impact a game without a doubt and you want them to be able to do that but actually the the real skill and value let's say in coaching is like coaching in any other area of life whether that's you know people who are mentors in the workplace or outside of that their relationship with you and their ability to help you reach your full potential and support you that's the real value of a coach and Blaine undoubtedly has done that for me. You talk about great people around you as being petrol pumps I absolutely love that expression so obviously he's one who are the other petrol pumps in your life obviously my boyfriend tim um you know he's he's been been brilliant and there's, there's many many ups and downs in sport it's it is a massive roller coaster there's no highs quite like you get in in sport uh, because it's so raw it's raw emotion um that's either you know you're either top of the world when you've won or rock bottom then there's injuries to you know there's a lot of difficulty so you definitely need that support team around you and whether it's that whether it's those you know nuts and bolts of of, of sport or in my case whether it's the fact that sometimes you know you can be trying to inspire people trying to make things better for for young girls and then like last week you know the BBC puts out a tweet saying you know decisions are being made on the women's football league mm. and all I saw was these gazillion comments about why don't they have an iron off? Why don't they decide it on a bake off? Uh, good, I'm glad women's football has been cancelled because I'm hungry. Get me a sandwich, you know, and, and much worse things. It's like a kick in the stomach sometimes and you can feel like, why are we even bothering? Um, and that's when it's important to have also those positive petrol pumps as well as the the competitive side of sport. There's that side that comes with it and it can get you down. And that's, you know, when you feel that, 
positive petrol tank getting lower and lower and lower, you need to have those people you can go to refuel that tank mm-hmm. and get back on the road and fighting the fight again. So, de- you know, definitely Tim would be one of them. And my family are hugely supportive and seem to always have the right words, you know, to, to say and hugs at the right time and all of that. And I've got a best friend, Nigel, who's been with me from the beginning of this boxing journey. He's, you know, a trustee now on Pave the Way. Uh, he's an incredible support, coaches, teammates, you know, to be honest, you know, even though those things get you down, when I sit back and look at that support network that I've got around me, and obviously I'm part of the part of the Unlocked Women's Sports Trust yeah. program now, it just comes from all sorts of places that inspiration and that positive petrol. And when you're feeling down, you've got to fill your tank with as yeah. much of it as you possibly can, and and use it to, for good to keep going forward. Well, I think you have those people around you because you put that back into them, haven't you? So it works both ways. We built this city, exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community. Is there a mantra or a motto that you have that keeps you focused and centred, either way, when you're preparing for a fight or you're about to do a big kind of public speaking opportunity? Yeah, I mean, for each camp, I tend to have um, a a quote that I focus on. Uh, The last couple of years, I've had, uh, it's going to be hard, but it's not impossible, um, in terms of coming back from all of the injuries that I've had. which have been, you know, lots of surgeries and just setback after setback since the Commonwealth title. Um, and that reminds me that, you know, think things are possible and sometimes it's just meant to be hard. Like and in sport, sometimes you have to remind yourself you've asked for it to be difficult. Like you, you, this is the personal challenge you asked for. So, you know, don't expect it to be easy. And I think we all set goals and say, you know, I want to be, let's say if you, you said I want to be a world champion, you can't say I want to be a world champion so long as everything goes my way. You've got you've got to be of that mindset that I want to be a world champion, even if it means overcoming an injury and a setback and a, this and that, you know, same as any goal that you set in life. But the one that I have with me constantly that's on my phone case is a famous Muhammad Ali saying, which is, uh, if uh, your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And the first time I came across that was for the European Championships because I was scared to death that whole week that I was at that tournament. And, it's difficult sometimes for your brain to understand why it's something you've wanted so badly and yet you get there and do nothing but panic. And it was a good reminder for me that actually this is your biggest dream right now is to get to the European Championships. You're here, so you're meant to be scared. That's meant to happen. That means that you, <laughs> you're living out those dreams that you've got. And it was really, really helpful that when that panic started to set in, I could say to myself, yeah, this is exactly how you're meant to feel because you're doing something big. And I, I apply that to like, you know, as, as you've said, talks and other things. And of course, the one about choosing courage over comfort. And uh, there's a few of those. And, and also I think to whom much is given, much is expected. You know, I've been given a lot. I've been given a big heart, a lot of energy, um, you know, decent ability in terms of sport. And I think I should use that and everything else that I've been given as much as possible to do what I can for others and to make things better. So uh, there's a few really that are useful to me at different times, but uh I think they can be really helpful, but only if you really, really believe in them, obviously, and they resonate with you. Absolutely. Well, we have the Roland Dransfield way, and that was 15 values that we put together as a team that are really important to us and by which we kind of hold ourselves accountable. Um, Were there any on there that kind of particularly stood out for you? Yeah, plant a tree was the one that stood out to me. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, uh, and one of the reasons why so many female athletes are very approachable is because we're all so aware um, that these opportunities were denied to us um, either in our own lifetimes or we're only able to do the things we do now because of those who came before us. 
And I think if you're not aware of it as a youngster, you eventually do become aware of it as a female athlete. And that's why we want to have that influence and inspire youngsters because we're so aware of it. For example, the likes of me who boxing and football wasn't possible as a little girl. So I want to encourage as many little girls as I can to, to get involved because it just wasn't there for, for me growing up. And I know many women of my era are the same. But I think in terms of concrete things of literally standing on the shoulders of those who came before us, one example would be Title IX. And now this happened in 1972 where both men and women campaigned for um, institutions in America to divide funding equally for sport in colleges because prior to that it all went to men's sports and women didn't get to really compete at all. And uh, men and women fought for that uh, Title IX and after that, that meant that colleges had to provide equal opportunities for women's sport. I obviously was a recipient of that some 40 years later when I went over to America on a scholarship. That would not have been possible had those people not fought for Title IX. I don't know any of those people personally who fought for that, and they don't know me, but I'm grateful to them, and I made the very most of that opportunity because I was grateful to them giving it me, and I hope they know that all of us are grateful who've been you know, able to be beneficiaries of, of the, the, the work that they did. And some of them won't have even benefited from it themselves, certainly not, but they did it because they knew it was right and they wanted people to have better opportunities. And that's not lost on us, you know, that the we only got those opportunities because people fought for it. And we look at now what difference that has made, that over the last three Olympics, the female USA athletes have won more medals than the males. That would not have happened without the opportunities in college sport. So it makes a massive difference. And that's why I've benefited from, you know, that as one example, but also people like Jane Couch, who fought for the right uh, for women to box in this country. And that was because of Sarah Leslie and Dinah Rose, the, the two QCs and the solicitor who fought the case for Jane Couch to fight. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And that happened in my lifetime. I was 17 when that court case happened, you know, and now I've been able to represent my country and, you know, standing on that podium at the European Championships, watching my country's flag be raised with a medal around my neck was phenomenal as it was mm -hmm. to make my pro debut in my home city of Manchester. Wouldn't have been possible without the people who've gone before. So planting a tree by which others can, you know, can benefit is huge. And that's what I'm trying to do now. And I might not know the people who benefit and they might not know me, but that doesn't matter. It, it, people have done it for me and I want to do it for them. And it's really important. Stacey, you're Mancunian through and through. So what do you love most about our city? Definitely the people. When uh, when I was away in America, I, I realised that I really missed that the northern humour, the northern way, that warmth. And, you know, it is, it is different to anywhere else. And uh, I do remember really clearly uh, when I was coming home from my first, like, stint. So I've there, been there about five months uh, and I was coming home for Christmas and... The first airport, they were all American because it was like a small airport in South Carolina. But then you go to a major airport to get your flight directly to Manchester. And I was wherever it was, Atlanta or Chicago or one of them. And when I got to the gate for the flight to Manchester, I remember sitting down and I heard someone say, get off. And someone else went, give it here. And I heard this back and forth of, nah, get off me. You get off. Give them a biscuit. It's not even a biscuit. And I was like, oh, there's my people. And I, honestly, it was unbelievable, the feeling of hearing that Mank accent again that I felt in my heart and in my bones and in every part of me. It was it was amazing. And I was like, I just wanted to sit there and go, keep talking, keep talking. And, uh, I, you know, it made me realise just how much I'd missed that, that warm accent, that, 
just the funny. Do you know, mm. they're just funny. Like, even when they say normal stuff, they're very, very funny. And uh, I really missed it. So, without a doubt, it's, it's the people. They're just, they're just dead funny and uh, not like anywhere else, really. No, absolutely not. <laughs> they broke the mill when they made Mancunians. Manchester's made a real name for itself in the boxing world. Why do you think that is? I think, I mean, like any major city, it's uh, boxing historically uh, is a very working class sport and it's got its roots in, you know, gyms that are spit and sawdust and like just like my granddad's gym was and, you know, kids from who perhaps don't fit in in other environments or ain't got the money or, you know, whatever, end up wandering into a boxing gym and mm. the characters that are involved in boxing are fantastic. It's such a colourful sport when you look at the characters and, and God knows what they'd be doing if they weren't boxing, all sorts of things. Um, and it, it's a real good mix of people. And I think in Manchester, we've got that, you know, we've got a lot of your working class, you know, kids who, who you know, want, if they if they just get the chance to direct and channel things in the right way they, they will do um and uh so yeah I, th I think it in most cities you've got that but in Manchester you've got the added thing that wants to give them that platform like I say you know we're warm we're funny we're relatable and I think people like that like we've seen we've seen with Ricky Atten we've seen it with Crawler we've seen it with Tyson Fury they've got that bit of you know cheeky mm. funny thing that perhaps you haven't got from other areas I think we have that other side to us as well don't we that, that mm. makes us special so your granddad and your dad are obviously massively important to you. What values have they taught you? I think from my, my granddad, he, he totally debunked this myth that everything's generational and that everybody above a certain age is sexist, homophobic, da -da 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 -da, you know, racist and whatever, because he just isn't. Uh, you know, he, he's worked in Saudi. He lived in New Zealand for a long time. He always taught us to be respectful of everybody. You know, he taught us a lot of history of uh, racism and oppression whether that, you know, and also about women as well. And, and he was massively supportive of all people and, and, you know, me included as a girl wanting to do boxing. And he taught me whatever you want to do, football, boxing, whatever it is, you do it and you be the best you can be. And um, that was an incredible support to have behind me, without a doubt. And he gave me some experiences I never would have had, you know, taking me to New York. That was unbelievable to be part of that, you know, that boxing group that went there, taking me to all the boxing shows, showing me how it all worked, how it went on, training me. So he was an incredible influence. And, and you know, also just to enjoy life. He's, he's a, he enjoys every single minute of his life. And, and that, that's a, a great lesson just that he's never had to say, but that he leads by example and that, you know, I hope I can always do. And then with my dad, I mean, he's a bit of a joker as well, for sure. But I think the thing with him, he taught me a great deal as a coach, but my great respect comes from him that, you know, his career was ended very early with a terrible injury and the way that he dealt with it was remarkable really for such a young man to sort of try and see the bigger picture, um, you know, look at it as a positive and, you know, use his life to help other people and, and to do good and not be bitter. And obviously he was devastated, but not to be bitter and twisted forever. And, you know, he instead he tried to help the careers of other boxers like me. And I think that's, uh, you know, quite a remarkable thing. So they both taught me a great deal in, in different ways. So days before you go, can we ask you some quick fire Manchester questions? Yeah. Okay. So what's your favourite Mancunian expression? Chuffed. <laughs> I love chuffed because it's... Uh, you can put it with anything and it's dead unique to us. So you can say dead chuffed, well chuffed, mega chuffed, proper chuffed. And it always means something positive. So I really like that. I mean, there's loads and loads of words that could go on, but chuffed, I think, is dead unique. <laughs> so I really like one. that one. <laughs> and what do you order at the chippy? Um, 
you know, I've, this came up the other week, actually, when I was on the radio, that I've never actually had fish and chips and everybody was going mad like I'd actually committed a crime. Um, so uh, apparently I've got to, everyone was like, you've got to try it, that's ridiculous. It was like, they were like really deeply offended that I'd not tried fish and chips. But yeah, from the chippy, if it's Chinese chippy, I love sweet and sour chicken. I absolutely love it. So that would be my, my choice. But if not, then yeah, I'd just be happy with chips. I think like 80% of the people I've asked this question to don't like fish and chips or haven't had it. Um, City or United? City women's team. Um, As a kid, I grew up as a Man United men's team fan because all of my family were United fans and my dad took me to my first ever men's football game, which was United, and it was incredible at Old Trafford. Um, But as I've got older, I'm completely disinterested in the men's Premier League and my niece Ruby is a mad Man City women's fan, so I 100% support them uh, uh, with her now. Brilliant. Um, most inspirational Mancunian? My workout tune that I had for boxing really uh, meant a great deal to me as a Mancunian because, of course, my debut was just a few weeks after the Manchester bomb attacks and everyone was quite nervy about coming to Bowlers, the big arena where we were, of course, because it was very soon after it and it was very emotional and me and my mascots, the kids I have as mascots, um, had the I Love Manchester t-shirts on and a lot of money was raised that night. And I had, um, and, and I was going to have it just that night, but I've always kept it as my ring walk song, which is um, shipping off to Boston. That's the actual song. But we had um, Tony Walsh over it with his, uh, this is the place poem. And it was the most phenomenal atmosphere coming out to that. And his words where it, you know, it, it you know, where it talks to, you know, it's in our heart, it's in our bones, this place is our home, let's give something back. And then it repeated, this is the place, this is a place, and it was uh, phenomenal. And I've always kept that, even had it in Zimbabwe. So <laughs> yeah. it probably probably wasn't the same for them, but for me, it, it meant meant everything. So yeah, very, very proud Mancunian, without a doubt. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you um, and always in, inspired. When I watched the TED Talk the other day, um, it made me cry. So thanks so much for everything you're doing. I think in terms of planting trees, um, there's lots of green shoots that we can see already. So good luck with that and thank you. No, thank you. And thanks for, for what you're doing. It's it's great to amplify everyone's voices and get people's stories out there and hopefully it can inspire other people and help them along too. So thank you so much. Stacey helped to build this city by knowing that the right thing and the hard thing are usually the same thing, by choosing courage over comfort, and by knowing the true value of the side hustle. My next guest is Chris Oglesby, Chief Executive of Bruntwood, which was founded in 1976 by his late dad, Michael. Chris has been 20 years at the helm of Bruntwood, and he's seen his fair share of recessions and other challenges. Next week, you're going to hear his view on how he helped to build the city and his views on how we're going to build it again. And watch out for a special episode that will be in your feed on Monday. This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years, 0161 236 1122.